I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Dynamics is seeking to make AI accessible. Though its Neopulse platform can be used across industries, the life sciences is one of the key markets the company is targeting with its technology being used to do everything from target identification for drug development to diagnosing and triaging TB patients by the sounds of their cough. We spoke to Rajiv Dutt, CEO and president of AI Dynamics, about the company's core AI technology how it seeks to make AI accessible, and why he believes it can transform drug development and healthcare by moving the needle on cost. Rajiv, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about AI dynamics, how it's working to make AI accessible, and what it's doing particularly in the area of healthcare. Let's start with Neopulse. What is it and how does it work? Well, Neopulse is a platform uh, that we have developed over the last uh, several years that uh, does several things. Uh, the first is it automates the, um, a large part of the process of building out machine learning models, which means uh, we can assist with um, marshalling the data and preparing the data for machine learning, uh, use the uh, onboard AI to determine the right set of algorithms, uh, all the way to deploying and managing the AI once it's in production. So kind of soup to nuts, um, machine learning um, development and also management. So in some sense, it has a uh, kind of like a, what we call ML ops, a machine learning operations, so built into the system. Um, however, um, one of the key things that we've also done is uh, we have uh, focused on certain areas. So our platform is um, kind of a Swiss army knife in many ways. You can work with many different data types. You can work with um, image uh, traditional data analytics. You can work with sound. You can work with um, uh, DICOM images in healthcare. And increasingly now uh, with nucleic acids and proteomics and things like that. So proteins, nucleic acids, and so on. Uh, so we, we support data types like that, as well as models for those particular purposes. And so uh, over the last several, um, the last year or so, we have increased the healthcare side of our platform dramatically, uh, including things like NLP to read um, uh, doctor's charts, uh, to um, using uh, DICOM analysis to basically understand uh, PET and CT images. And uh, we have been working very closely with a biotechnology company uh, working with um, on uh, uh, key aspects of nucleic acids, so certain key properties, identifying those using machine learning, identifying certain key properties of um, RNA and uh, also uh, with uh, drug drug discovery. So, um, uh, in particular, identifying specific drug targets. Uh, those are uh, things that we have been uh, very focused on. 
So the um, so essentially using our platform, long story short, is our platform is all about making AI accessible. Um, we are we make it accessible to almost anybody, and uh, we've had high school students use our platform quite successfully. But it can be ramped up all the way for large enterprises to use it. And uh, certainly what we're, and in particular, we're very interested and very um, passionate about the healthcare se sector uh, because it fits in with our overall vision and uh, purpose as a company, which is to uh, effectively make, democratize AI, but democratize AI in an ethical way. I assume I've been operating under a, a big misconception about AI, but I, I think of these systems as being fit for purpose, a, a platform used for drug development, I would imagine would be different than one use for diagnostics or, or for that matter to determine what music someone might like or, or how to design a jet engine. What allows your system to work across virtually any application? Well, the, there are two things, actually. The, the first is that we have an, un, so firstly, we, we support many different data types. And so, which means that we have um, algorithms that allow us to pre-process a lot of data types, um, which means that we can process nucleic acids. So you just essentially dump uh, sort of nucleic acid sequences into our platform and we're able to kind of work with that. We have algorithms for um, working with images uh, to work with DICOM data and three-dimensional images like working the, with voxels and so on. So that's the first element. Um, giving our, We have a broad variety of um, uh, algorithms to select from and, and ways to kind of pre-process and uh, prepare the data. The second thing is that we also have a, what we call an AI to build an AI or auto ML feature, um, which is pretty sophisticated. It has a pretty broad range of um, algorithms that uh, we have um, amassed over the years and we're continuing to develop and evolve. Um, so always staying state of the art. Um, as well as a bunch of pre-trained models and so on that we are that we've added to the mix that allow us to uh, very quickly adapt our system to almost any new vertical. Um, so, which means that right now we're very focused on the healthcare sector, but tomorrow, for example, we might be um, able to do things in the cybersecurity domain uh, or in um, AI-driven IT ops or something like that. And that's certainly well within the capabilities of what our platform can do. What does it take to set up a system for a specific use and, and how much back-end programming is required? How much end-user training is required? So um, it would depend. <laughs> it's like many other statements. It depends on what you're trying to do. Um, so if, if it comes with, um, if you're trying to solve some problems that there, there already exists uh, sort of a pathway to those to solving those problems, then it's relatively straightforward. You, the whole thing from start to finish, uh, like you, you can actually build and deploy an AI model uh, in a matter of, um, uh, well, not not including the training, but actually uh, creating the algorithms, prepare the data, and deploying. If you take all those pieces together, um, we, you can do that within about fifteen minutes, and then the training itself takes uh, several. What depends on the power of your machine and how much, um, how many iterations or epochs you're basically running your model through. Um, uh, but the process is very simple. Um, so for things that are more co complicated, uh, things that, for example, may rely on multiple AI models that you're stringing together, um, it could be uh, that there, there are some intermediate steps and so on. Um, obviously, they, those are going to take longer. Um, but the machine learning components of that 
are things that we address and things that make that relatively straightforward. So um, in some cases, um, like to solve some of these problems, you need to build several machine learning models. So uh, one of the uh, drug discovery um, projects uh, involved building several machine learning models um, all the way from target identification um, to validation, et cetera. So all that kind of, it, it is, it kind of like comes into a box and that's, that can take a month, several months in, to be able to accomplish that. Um, so I think in, in this case, it took about four months. Um, but it's still uh, kind of a record <laughs> in quotation marks compared to uh, what it would normally take if you were to kind of go out there and, and start from scratch or start from Python or even uh, working with some, some vendors who are specialized in those areas. Um, but we have the flexibility that once you've built this within, within the Neopulse uh, system, then you can easily then integrate that with the next stage. So for example, um, uh, with uh, it's great to identify targets, but um, for example, doing lead optimization or lead discovery, those are kind of like the next logical steps there. Um, then those are things that you would want to, um, uh, you, you'd need to kind of build models for, um, and then continue to evolve that. Um, it, for medical imaging, it's a, it's a much more straightforward problem. Uh, we have already a number of the algorithms built into the system. Um, so, which means that uh, in many cases, it's a simple drag and drop. So you literally drop the um, uh, images into the system as long as they're cur currently like in the right folders. Um, you just drag the uh, images into the, into the machine um, and uh, with a little bit of uh, tweaking, which normally takes about 15, 20 minutes, uh, you can then get the machine to start training. Um, we have two ways of using our system. One is uh, actually three ways. One is um, uh, the pure auto mode. So which means that you rely on the machine learning system itself to generate um, AI uh, for your, like to build out the right set of algorithms, architectures. The second approach is what we call guided AI development. So which means that you um, build out your solution and the system will recommend um, uh, potential, like for example, they'll say, okay, you, you want to try this pre-trained model and if, with this pre-trained model, you want to add this layer and this layer and this layer. So we kind of like guide you through the process of building out the AI model. And then there's a third method, which is of course, which is uh, where you do everything manually. But even there we can help because um, what we do is we have a specialized language that we call the Neopulse modeling language, uh, which can reduce the amount of coding from several hundred lines of code to um, like around 30 codes, 30 lines of code, which of course simplifies your task as well. So, um, so because of that, um, we are able to uh, reduce the amount of time and also reduce the number, num reduce the amount of errors in the process um, and uh, reduce the amount of um, Kind of effort and skill set, the skill sets that are not, that are required. So, we are targeting our platform more towards domain experts and not to machine learning people. Uh, so, machine learning people are very comfortable using traditional methods like PyTorch and so on. But the domain experts are the ones who typically have the knowledge that's required to build out the sophisticated algorithms that that are needed. But they don't necessarily have the technical skills to build out the machine learning models themselves. In, in March, AI Dynamics announced that its system is being used by the Rapid Research and Diagnostic Developments for TB Network, R2D2, 
Uh, this is part of their scale up for your TB Diagnostic Solution Program. This is hosted by QB3 and the UCSF Rosenman Institute. What is R2D2 TB Network? Um, so it's a, a kind of a global um, collaboration. Uh, you have um, the University of Heidelberg, um, the UCSF, and as well. Um, and so what it what it is is about developing uh, treatments and diagnostic procedures um, for tuberculosis, which is one of the, turns out, and I was actually really surprised to know this, it is the leading cause of death in the world. Um, I, I didn't know that <laughs> until we started entering the program. Um, and it is really to, to develop the tools and diagnostics um, and also potential therapies and uh, in a way that is relatively low cost and accessible uh, to the places where um, such treatments and diagnostics are most needed. It's kind of astounding. You know, I think most people living in the United States may be unaware of how significant a public health problem TB represents, but give us some of the numbers. It represents about 1.4 million uh, deaths per year, uh, most of them in the developing world. Uh, the number of cases in the U.S. is substantially lower, as one might expect, but um, in places uh, like Sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, uh, it is a uh, dominant, uh, it's, it's an extremely prevalent source of, um, uh, it's, an, it's a very prevalent uh, cause of death. Your AI systems are, are being used to triage patients by analyzing the sound of their coughs. Why is it important to triage patients? Well, in order to triage, so basically depending upon the um, stage that they're in and the, uh, the level of uh, sick, so some people are kind of in later stages and are more uh, in need of uh, therapy and treatment. Um, people who are in the earlier stages, uh, perhaps it's not so uh, critical. Um, so understanding sort of the, what stage the uh, particular um, uh, the, the patient is in um, is effectively a way to um, uh, to to kind of determine okay uh, this person desperately needs treatment now versus um, yeah we can be more uh, selective and also the treatment um, regime changes so you're either so the type of drugs and the course of uh, drugs that you might be using will also change. Uh, but triaging the patients, basically allowing the cough uh, by detecting the cough and determining what stage they're in uh, and the severity of the infection, um, it allows you to kind of say, okay, we're going to allocate the treatment to these patients first and um, the ones that are um, secondary or not so poorly off at the beginning. And there, there are some people who develop uh, sort of a latent um, uh, case, which sort of lingers, but they, but never really develops into full-fledged um, tuberculosis. They have become carriers of the disease, um, can potentially are able to spread that infection, but the at the same time, um, they may not necessarily be as at risk um, as uh, some of the people who are in the later stages. It's interesting to think you can train an, an AI system to do this by the sound of a cough, What's the argument for this being a, a better approach than more traditional ways a doctor might determine the severity of a case? Well, I think the, the biggest aspect is the cost of doing so. Um, so the, 
uh, traditional way, uh, so typically the way doctors will do it is using a, a stethoscope anyway, that would be sort of the first um, uh, way, so detecting sort of sounds in the lung. Um, of course, you can use x-rays and um, CT scans and so on, but those are, but those increase in cost. So from the stethoscope upwards to the CT, it's um, a never escalating cost, which is oftentimes not available. On the other hand, if you have a cell phone, um, which with a microphone and the person just coughs into, uh, into that, you can actually listen to that cough and be able to diagnose it. That's really like penny. So it's the cost of downloading the app and somebody there to um, kind of listen to it. So the, and the AI will make a sort of a preliminary diagnosis and say, okay, this person uh, might be at a later stage or an early stage of tuberculosis and uh, therefore will require treatment. So it, it basically gives firstly more accessibility. Um, it requires a lower skill level uh, to use um, and also allows the um, tuberculosis um, uh, treatment to go into places that are normally inaccessible or very hard to access for uh, traditional healthcare providers. Um, so, which means that, I mean, especially in places like Africa, where um, you have cell phone networks that are ubiquitous, um, the availability of this treatment then suddenly becomes um, possible to even the sort of the remote villages and places like that. And what's been done to, to validate this? What's known about the accuracy of this approach compared to a, a doctor using a stethoscope? Well, the, um, the, the preliminary uh, results are encouraging. Um, we believe that, uh, so we're continuing to um, develop the model and we believe that we'll be able to increase the accuracy to that or exceeding that of a human doctor. Um, the... Uh, but at the moment, we're currently in the training process. And uh, if we, prior to this, we were also looking at uh, using blood samples um, to, uh, and using machine learning uh, to look at certain key factors in the blood, not actually looking at doing PCR um, tests or something like that, but actually looking at blood samples. And we were able to get an extremely high accuracy for those results. Uh, for these results, um, our we have a fairly high confidence that we're going to get to something um, as good or even better, um, but we're still in the process of kind of getting there. You had uh, an 88% accuracy on your blood test. Is correct? Is that correct. still being developed and used? Um, so the blood test uh, has the, uh, so we, we got some brilliant um, results from that. The challenge with, with the blood test is that it's still, the costs are still not as low as what we would like um, because uh, the, at, the, at the end of the day, even though we're not doing PCR tests and it's uh, still accessible uh, to a lot of um, clinics, uh, the, it still does not get us to where we want to go, which is basically have a ubiquitous test that can easily be deployed more broadly. Um, and so the, the blood test um, side would be something that we're, we'll probably put on hold until um, we'd like to do is focus on this because we believe that uh, the cough um, listening system has much broader reach than, uh, than the blood testing one does. That would be probably the next one. So if we were to, uh, like if we were to develop a program around this, it would be the first the cough side and then the, the blood test side. So maybe the two kind of support each other. So if you identify patients from the cough that have a high likelihood of having this, 
then the next thing would be to draw a blood sample from them because um, just drawing the blood sample and then processing it is expensive. So if you can already narrow down or filter the number of people who have to go through that, that's a huge step forward. And, and what's the path forward to making this uh, available broadly? So um, what we're going to be doing is, so over the next uh, year or so, we will be continuing to, um, we're, we're currently uh, obtaining more and more data, uh, which is key uh, for a lot of machine learning projects. Um, so or going back to an earlier question uh, in terms of accessibility, our system is very accessible, but um, the key thing that's we're always data hungry um, and we're developing algorithms to reduce the amount of data that's needed, but Still, uh, we need data. So we're, we're basically accumulating more and more data uh, for this project. And so we believe that we will have a uh, trained system, a fully trained system within the next year, and then um, a, a kind of a POC app uh, within about six months after that. So, um, so probably about 18 months, I'd say we'll have something out there. You talked about the wide range of applications within healthcare alone that Neopulse can be used for. How is it being used for in the case of drug development? Well, in the drug development space, um, there are several areas where we have already been involved with. One is basically to understand uh, certain key attributes of um, RNA sequences. So um, one of the things, so there are different types of um, RNA sequences and different types of RNA. And what we, for example, were interested in um, was um, looking at, so with, we were working with a biotechnology company and they're interested in certain key aspects that would allow uh, us to regulate um, the production of certain types of proteins. And so using machine learning, we, would be able, we were able to identify those attributes and do it better than anyone else could, um, which, was, uh, which really impressed them. And then the second part of that, uh, which is uh, the the which is the next stage, is to kind of uh, work on target discovery. Um, so identifying specific gene targets that um, are responsible for properties of cancers, or in this particular case, it's for cancer, but um, where it could potentially also be used for any kind of other diseases like autoimmune disorders and so on. Um, and then the next stage after that, which is kind of what we are in the process of developing, uh, is to identify a way to um, determine uh, using machine learning uh, to identify the right set of molecules. And then that might potentially be used to um, use to uh, target that the, the sort of the genes, the gene expression pathway that has been that has uh, been identified. Um, and so. AI can be used in almost every stage of the process of, machine, of um, drug development. Uh, so from the earlier stages for uh, target discovery, so uh, then uh, lead discovery, lead optimization, then you have uh, what's called ADMET, where you determine the safety of the drug um, and, um, and then kind of the preclinical trials. So being able to identify the right set of patients, identifying biomarkers, all of these tasks can be done by machine learning. Um, and we estimate that from that, uh, we would be able to cut down the amount of um, time taken uh, from something like 15 years down to less than, uh, to almost seven. So almost 50% reduction in time. But probably the most significant thing, and for me, the most exciting thing is the, um, the probability of success. So currently the success rate for developing new drugs is less than 10%. So 
it can be as low as 5% and can cost over, over 2 billion to kind of put, put something on the market in over 17 years. Um, if you can increase that confidence level to about 60%, even if it takes the same amount of time, it's, it still will have the have a great impact. But we're talking about increasing the confidence level, but also decreasing the amount of time and cost um, by addressing each of the stages of the drug development process. Um, so by uh, streamlining the, uh, the analytics steps uh, to um, so everything from the drug target identification, all the way from patient identification, biomarker identification, streamlining the results, uh, processing the, the, the field tests and, and, and drug trials. So all the evidence coming in, all of those steps can easily be, um, not easily, but they can all be uh, accelerated by machine learning and also be made to be less um, prone to error. It seems to me that one of the big opportunities for AI and healthcare is really in supporting clinical decision-making. I've seen a lot on the drug development side, much less on the clinical side. Are, are there regulatory barriers or other considerations that have slowed such uses? That is actually one of the major, so there's several challenges. One is um, the regulatory, um, th there are regulatory issues because anytime you take something, uh, make it as a clinical diagnostic system or treatment system, then immediately um, you have to go through the FDA, FDA processes. But there's also some other broader um, issues as well, uh, which are uh, uh, things like just acceptance of, of physicians. Um, uh, just even the acknowledgement or the realization that a system potentially might outperform a human is, is in itself sometimes um, alarming to some people or the claim that a system can potentially outperform a human is, is already in itself um, alarming. The uh, overall focus um, of the our, our system is to develop these uh, treatments as not necessarily, uh, the, the diagnostics and treatments is not necessarily so much as a um, as we're not make, planning to make that the final decision maker, but rather as a recommendation to, or as a, an aid to physicians. So, which means that it's not it's not responsible for the final diagnostic. Uh, it will largely be as an aid, just as the physician might look up something on Google. Um, we they would, for example, query this system, and the system comes back with, okay, yeah, this it could be this. So, for example, we recently built um, an AI model. Um, that is able to detect COVID uh, to an over 99% accuracy rate just by looking at the x-rays. So we currently outperform most um, human doctors. Um, it's like, I, I don't think that there are any human doctors who have that kind of accuracy. Um, but we would never kind of push that through um, a clinical process simply because of the fact that it is a very expensive and, and long, like a, it's a grueling task. I mean, we would be happy to have, like um, license it through some third parties would be interested in kind of taking this forward, but uh, we ourselves uh, don't want to do this instead use it as an aid for physicians. So that's kind of like the, the where we see AI currently is mostly as an aid. So uh, you hear about this in, in um, the RSNA, for example, the Radiological Society of North America, they have a big conference every year. And uh, one of the things that a prominent theme that you keep hearing is computer aided diagnostics. And uh, this is something that you're going to see more and more of uh, where the machine is not the final arbiter, the decision maker, it's simply providing it as, as an aid to that process. 
Um, so for example, uh, some of the private um, practices may have an AI that is used to triage or perhaps um, suggest that, hey, this person has a pulmonary edema, um, for example. And um, so basically the physician can, it goes off to a physician who might be an expert in um, uh, kind of in, in that particular area of the body and who's better able to then make the diagnostics. So that's kind of how I see AI today and what the, so which basically is a much lower uh, threshold for acceptance. But if we really want to go to the point where it becomes a, a final diagnostic solution, um, that would require firstly some changes to the way the FDA approves uh, machine learning algorithms. Um, and secondly, because one of the one of the traits of machine learning, which is for me very exciting, is the ability to constantly retrain. Um, so, for example, when it when the AI makes a mistake, um, can you use that uh, mistake to retrain, like to train that AI to make it smarter? But if the moment you change that AI, uh, the problem is now: do I now have to submit that that modified AI for regulatory approval? Um, and if, if that's the case, then the, uh, it becomes ever more challenging because even the, what you've effectively done, so the, the way machines work is that you can, you can train them, you can continue to improve their understanding of problems, um, just as you would, as a human would, when they kind of experience more and more problems. Um, but the challenge that you'd have to uh, deal with in, in with machine learning models is that every time you modify the model or change it, or for example, expand its diagnostic capabilities, um, that potentially would require new regulatory approval. So machine learning is still, I think there needs to be a certain amount of catch up um, by the regulatory agencies. Um, it's not to say that there shouldn't be any regulations, obviously there should be, but to determine what the right balance is and kind of where what is acceptable and what set of pr processes or procedures you might need to have in order to recognize that okay the updated model is potentially better and more better performant than the old one so maybe um, having some clear processes and procedures in in in, in mind to implement those uh, might actually allow us to then place these AI models under regulatory control. But right now, I don't even think that there's a good framework there for this. Does that make sense? Yeah. U ultimately, how do you expect AI to change the world of healthcare? And where do you see the biggest opportunities to apply AI? Well, I think there are many different areas. The uh, area that I'm most excited about is drug discovery. Um, the the reason for that is the complexity and expense of the process. It, the cost of developing new drugs is phenomenal. Um, it's something that only the very largest drug companies can currently uh, pay for. Um, granted that a very large part of that expense is regulatory, um, going back to the previous theme, it's still a very expensive process. And the other side of that is that there is a lot of uh, data uh, that's that's been accumulating over the years in terms of um, how drugs are behaving and and um, how the like the interactions and and, uh, and indications and so on that are uh, that so understanding the drug interactions and so on they're, they're, we're get, we're accumulating a bigger and bigger corpus um, of knowledge there so I see that there the ability of AI to impact the drug discovery part in particular is uh, pretty immense the second area which is probably one that I'm very passionate about because 
uh, I was actually born in Africa, so I have a particular interest in um, seeing that uh, that the that access to medicine there is is more um, broad scale. So we're able to scale it out to a much larger uh, set of people. Um, one of the things I'm very uh, uh, passionate about is the, the ability to lower the overall cost of healthcare. Uh, which means primary care in particular. So TB is a great example, but are there some other examples like electronic stethoscopes um, that uh, potentially could be used so that you require lower skill level uh, technologies that exploit the, um, uh, that are able to can work uh, despite the supply chain issues and uh, logistical issues that you might experience in, in these places. Um, if you're able to develop a low, lower cost healthcare solutions to these countries, that would obviously be a big thing. But also at home, uh, we all also recognize like in the United States and most of the Western, uh, like the developed nations, we end up also seeing an increased cost of medicine um, as the population ages. And um, of course, as uh, we're also seeing more uh, diseases linked to obesity and, and so on. Um, and to be able to again provide healthcare that is more accessible, uh, we we hear of course horror stories of people being bankrupted by their their healthcare bills. So if we can kind of bring a lot of that into primary care and reduce the cost of primary care in the U.S. and other developed countries, uh, that would also of course have a huge impact on the um, quality of medicine. So I see that those those two areas as being my primary interest points where I think that we can make the biggest difference. And of course, there are a lot of other areas like uh, medical imaging and so on where, but in my opinion, in terms of impact, um, the, the, the primary care and accessible primary care and uh, also drug discovery would be the two, my, my two targets. Rajiv Dutt, President and CEO of AI Dynamics. Rajiv, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, it was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.